Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 7, Episode 4. My name is Rick. I'm author of many books, including my latest one, uh, co-written with Dr. Daniel Amina of the Amen Clinics. It's called The Suicide Solution. It's just released in late fall last year, and it's a book about uh, depression, anxiety, and suicidality, and how Jesus uh, interacts with us, sets a model or a template for um, becoming whole, uh, how to build up a bulwark against this downward slide toward anxiety and depression, which is basically an epidemic in the Western world right now, and particularly in the United States. So uh, that's what the book's about. It's, um, it's a fascinating and deep dive into uh, the, the uh, kind of intersection of following Jesus and psychological and emotional health. So there you have it, <laughs> a real light read for you, but um, it's, it's a great book to read for anyone, not just someone who's struggling with depression or suicidality. The last two thirds of the book is really a, a menu of opportunity for holistic living, um, grounded in Jesus, but informed by um, science um, and clinical practice in psychiatry. So there you have it. Um, and of course, the, the book before that, that, that was released is the Jesus Center Daily, a daily devotional, which is always a, a great gift for a friend or family member who um, can establish a, a, a daily pattern of uh, tasting and seeing that Jesus is good. That was the whole mission behind that. So this episode is the first episode in a new focus on the podcast that I'm calling The Ways of Jesus. It's been, I think, almost a month since the last episode I, I posted, and it's been quite a month of activity. Um, I'm in the midst of doing something that I've never done before, which is filming a documentary for Vibrant Faith. I'm executive director of Vibrant Faith for about the last year and a half, and we're filming a documentary about how people, what happens in people's lives when they recognize, embrace, and follow their calling. So we're in the middle of that, and I've had several trips um, to uh, to various parts of the United States as we're as we're collecting interviews and stories for this. And uh, about ten days ago, my dad passed away. Uh, he he was ninety years old and desperately miserable in his body um, and really wanting to go home, but. He was continuing to, I, I would call it, exist in an assisted living place. And he had entered the hospital briefly uh, because of pneumonia, was getting better from it. I, the day I was supposed to go take him home, suddenly he had a mysterious drop in his blood pressure and um, the doctors in the ICU could not figure out why. And we were called to come, come to the hospital quickly and we got there literally five minutes before he passed. So I was able to hold his hand and we were able to tell him we loved him and, and I was praying as he passed. Um, so 
that happened as well in the last uh, 10 days or two weeks. So life has felt like a jumble. So here I am recording a new, a new episode. Sorry that we're a month apart. Um, and thank you for continuing to listen. Uh, today, in this first episode of The Ways of Jesus, we'll be um, pursuing the heart of Jesus by taking a deep dive into the way he lived and loved others. That's what it means to to explore the ways of Jesus. So that's what we're going to be doing. And this first one is sort of an intro to uh, what we'll be doing for a long time. I'm not sure how many episodes we'll, we'll do, but um, there'll be many. I, I expect at least six months of, of exploring the ways of Jesus. And this first one is I'm calling the secret sauce. You'll see why later. <laughs> That's why it's a secret. So, uh, but first, I think it's good for us to pause because we did this little mini series on the morality of Jesus, uh, just two episodes on the morality of Jesus. And I think it's good before we dive into the ways of Jesus, uh, that, that the, this mini series on the morality of Jesus was actually a good on-ramp into what we're going to explore today. So just as a reminder that the moral map of Jesus includes these highlights, if you can remember from our last two episodes, integrity and completeness and purity and perfection. These are words that describe the the core of the morality of Jesus, integrity, completeness, purity, and perfection. These are truths that stand apart from and are not dependent on our circumstances or our cultural conditions. They're not uh, beholding to our circumstances, I guess, is a way of saying it, that at the core of the kingdom of God and the morality of the kingdom of God, there's a wholeness or an integrity, a completeness, Another way of, call, of describing that is purity and perfection, but those words seem uh, out of reach for us. But they, what they really mean is that that thing is completely whole. What you see on the outside is how it is on the inside. There, there's no difference between the outside and the inside. Um, and, and we talked about a phrase that came up in our, in our group of young people that we lead, Esse quam videre, the Latin, the Latin phrase, esse quam videre, which means to be, not to appear. That's the core. Uh, that's a good way of describing the core, to be, not to appear. And at the center of this moral map of Jesus is, of course, the heart. Recognizing our need for Jesus means that we are in touch with the need of our heart. Um, and that our need for Jesus really speaks to the, uh, that we need a standard for our morality, a standard for truth that is outside of ourselves. That's how we learn what is good and true. So we, in, in doing that, we recognize that our morality is always sourced in him and is accessed through a trusting relationship with his spirit. So rather than following rules and regulations, what we're doing is following Jesus through the through the enablement of his spirit. That's why Jesus said, it's better if I go away to his disciples, because then you're going to get the spirit and the spirit's going to enable you to, to in, in any moment and moment by moment, follow me. <laughs> That's what the spirit helps you to do. And so when you're following me, then you're reconnecting and reconnecting again to the source of all truth and morality. So our morality then is the fruit of our attachment to the source of all truth. 
producing the fruit of goodness in our life, not a performance. And I have to say, um, in the Christian uh, in the Christian life, there's always this gravitational pull towards performance, toward uh, trying harder to be better. And what Jesus says is really the source of our life and our life of living well and living truly is always our attachment <clears throat> to his spirit. So it's important, um, as I just mentioned, as, uh, as we pause to look back on what we just chewed on, to consider the context of that Jesus was living in when he delivered his Sermon on the Mount, because the Sermon on the Mount really is his magnum opus of the morality of the kingdom of God. It wasn't meant to be a roadmap for how everyone was supposed to go out and self-discipline more into what he was talking about. He was trying to paint a picture of what the kingdom of God is all about and how it's different from the kingdom of this world, radically different. Uh, it was meant to shock and awe the people that were listening to him and to paint a picture of what goodness looks like. So uh, it's important, though, <laughs> to understand the context he was speaking this into. He never, uh, you know, the, the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5, 6, and 7 where he's just basically blasting away at this crowd for three chapters. And he, as we've said before on the podcast, he never does that again. That's, that's the only example in the gospels where he does that. So there's something strategic going on. Whenever Jesus does something that he doesn't often do, it's important to slow down and consider why is he doing that when he doesn't do that after that. It's really not about communication. It's about contrast. As we said, he's trying to contrast the way of the kingdom of God with the way of the world, you know, or the, or the Jesus way versus the me way. And remember, this is important. Jesus is not pointing to the way he is the way. So that that's different. He's not a religious teacher trying to help people understand the way of truth. He is a relational God who wants to have deep and intimate attachment with us. So he doesn't want us to attach to truths outside of himself. He wants us to attach to him. He is the way. So again, it, uh, what will help us to understand the contrast of following the way of Jesus versus, the, versus following the ways of the world, uh, the only way we can get a taste of that contrast is to understand a little bit more of the cultural context surrounding his Sermon on the Mount. So I want to play a short excerpt from an episode of Drive Through History. It, it'll give, give you a little bit of a taste of the cultural context that Jesus was speaking into when he spoke the Sermon on the Mount. So let's listen. In our previous episodes of Drive Through History, we looked at the Jewish people, their heritage, and the Messiah that they eagerly expected. But it's important to remember that during the Gospels period, not all Jews were living devoutly religious lives. For many during this period, teachings of a Messiah were ancient lore, the stuff of bedtime stories, stories that no longer seemed that relevant in the culture in which they now lived. 330 years prior to the birth of Jesus, a Greek named Alexander began an extensive military campaign, conquering the entire Persian Empire, which then included Judea. In 332 BC, Alexander captured Jerusalem and brought with him the Greek culture known as Hellenism. 
Now the word Hellenism comes from the Greek word Hellenismos. This word came to describe a set of values for living that was invented by the ancient Greeks. Hellenism would come to dominate the Mediterranean region for centuries. By 313 BC, Hellenistic ideas had begun expanding into the Near East and Central Asian cultures. It was the empire's governmental framework to rule by establishing hundreds of cities for trade purposes. The influence of Hellenism included everything from art, architecture, and morality to clothing, hairstyles, and food. Many of the existing cities began or were compelled by force to adopt Hellenized philosophy, religious sentiments, and politics. The Hellenistic religion included everything from worshiping Greek gods and goddesses to consulting oracles to the study of astrology. After the death of Alexander, Judah fell to the Seleucid Empire. The Seleucid Empire was a major center of Hellenism and sought to impose it on Judah. The Seleucid king, Antiochus Epiphanes, banned key Jewish religious rites and traditions and defiled the temple. Not surprisingly, this caused an uprising. In 166 BC, a group of Jews called the Maccabees began a fierce revolt which brought a time of independent Jewish rule called the Hasmonean dynasty. For a time, they flourished, but ultimately their attempts to maintain their freedom and to cleanse their culture of the outside influence of Hellenism failed. That's because in 63 BC, another outside force, this time the powerful Roman Empire, imposed its rule in the region. Because the Roman Empire had largely adopted Hellenism, Greek culture again re-entrenched itself in Judea. All of this happened during the 400-year period between the writing of Malachi, the last prophet in the Hebrew scriptures, and the birth of Jesus. At this point in the gospel story, Judea had become a crossroads of cultures and ideas. By this time, many Jews had grown quite comfortable and had adapted to Greek influence and the relative peace that went along with Roman control. Eh, it's what people do, they adapt. But devout Jews hated Roman rule with its mixed bag of polytheistic and pagan beliefs which stood in direct opposition to their beloved Jewish law. For them, Roman rule was yet another sad chapter in a long history of oppression that they had had to endure as a people. It was into this cultural milieu that Jesus of Nazareth arrived. So maybe you could pick out some similarities from the culture, the dominant culture at the time of Jesus' birth and the culture that he was born into and then grew up in and our own cultural context. Uh, if you picked out some of the key phrases, one of them probably was, that in Judea, the cultural context was crossroads of culture and ideas. So it was this mishmash of some Orthodox Jewish beliefs, but kind of threaded into these sort of secular Hellenistic practices that made for a people that identified religiously, but if you had really examined the way they lived, 
they lived a secular life for the most part by a set of cultural values and beliefs that didn't have much uh, sort of connection to their faith in some ways. I mean, they, they told themselves they did, but really what they were living were the, was a Hellenistic sort of uh, list of life priorities. So they, in the clip that we just listened to, they don't, he doesn't really explain what Hellenism is, but it was a way of living that focused on, um, uh, let's say, four virtues. And those virtues included prudence and fortitude and justice and temperance. These were called cardinal virtues, um, prudence, fortitude, justice, and temperance. Uh, nothing wrong with those things, right? But they, if what you have uh, done in your culture is determined to live by these four virtues, um, by disciplining yourself to be a good person, a good person who is marked by your prudence, your fortitude, your justice, and your temperance, it doesn't really allow room for uh, a fundamental attachment to God. I mean, we can do these things on our own. That's essentially the message of Hellenism. Uh, a good citizen can do these things on their own. What do we need God for, for these things? We can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and live in this way. So the Orthodox Jews clung to the rules as a way to hold on to their identity. So now you get, you, you get a little bit of an understanding as to why the Pharisees became what they were. The, the rules and following every jot and tittle of them and creating new rules to follow by and, and constantly strapping these new rules and regulations and these new expectations onto the backs of the Jews were their way of fighting against the encroaching advance of Hellenism. They, they saw this mixing of Hellenism and Jewish, and Jewish faith as a way to um, kill Orthodox Judaism, that Hellenism was like a cancer that threaded, threaded itself around healthy cells and was slowly choking it off. And so um, the, the rule keeping that the Pharisees oversaw was a way for them to hang on to this identity that they saw slipping away. So really, at the core of the Pharisees' hypocrisy, really, was their fear of losing themselves. It's important to understand why Jesus was so upset with this sort of false form of religion that the Pharisees were propagating, because it was propagated out of fear. So, uh, and the fear was a sort of a religious commingling, again, with this encroaching culture, that was oriented toward usefulness, meaning these, these four virtues were useful uh, to live a virtuous life. None of this had anything to do with a deepening relationship with God. These were simply secular versions of religious practices, essentially. Ring a bell <laughs> in our own culture, in a culture that where 95% of people still in the, in the U.S. at least say that they believe in God, but where very few people, uh, something around 10%, according to Gallup and according to Barna, something around 10% of Americans have what, you, what they determine is an all-in faith, meaning that their faith is the center of their life, 
and it spills into their everyday conversation and their everyday practices. It's about 10% of us. Uh, so there's this wide gap between people who see themselves as they would, they would answer on a survey, I'm a Christian, but their lifestyle is really, has really very little to do with an intimate relationship with God. And, and they wouldn't call themselves even followers of Jesus, even though Jesus is part of their belief system. They have been commingled away. <laughs> and it helps to understand even some of the extreme versions that we have in our culture today that are like, and very much like, the, the extreme practices of the Pharisees. At, at the extremes in our culture, there are people, I think, operating out of a fundamental fear of losing their identity to the creeping secularism that is coming into the culture. And as in response to that, they propagate new rules and regulations and standards that all of us should be trying harder to be better at. Um, it is a contemporary version of Phariseeism born out of fear. So um, if you're afraid of losing your very identity, then you do extreme things, right? And that's that. I think that's some of the foundation of where we find ourselves today with um, extreme versions of things that are attaching themselves to Christianity. And yet I believe that... Um, Jesus would respond to those extreme practices the same way he responded to the Pharisees with blistering criticism. <laughs> so uh, when we live in a commingled culture um, with uh, a mix of su succeeding influences that are cascading through that culture, um, then it's important for us to recognize the tension and dissonance that creates in us. And instead of responding in the way that the Pharisees did or, or the way extremist groups in our extremist Christian groups or religious groups in our own culture respond, what is the way of Jesus? Because the Sermon on the Mount was meant to chart a path for the way of Jesus in the world, the way of the kingdom of God. And as much as it cut across some of the commonly accepted cultural practices that were happening in his culture, it also cut across the Pharisees' answer to those cultural practices as well. And essentially, he angered both people who had given themselves over to the world, and he angered those who were saw themselves as fighting for orthodoxy in that world. He angled, he angered both of those groups, um, as Jesus likes to do. So. Um, these tensions between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, uh, they, they were crashing into each other like tectonic plates. And Jesus was quite clear that that's what he came to do. He didn't came, he, he said very explicitly, I didn't come to bring peace. I'm not trying to help you embrace your existing belief system and lifestyle, whether you have co-opted into the commingled culture or whether you have responded with, with extreme try harder to, to be better standards and rules. I'm not, I didn't come to, to make you feel at peace with your current choices. No, I, I came to set you against those things so much so that in your own family, you may become an enemy if you follow what I'm talking about. Um, because what I'm talking about is above your family uh, of origin. It's, 
it points to your true family, the, 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 the offer we have through the Messiah to become part of um, the Messiah's own family. That's what Jesus came to do was offer us a way to become brothers and sisters, sons and daughters in his family. So <clears throat> with all that said, let's back up even more. There was a miraculous birth that preceded the miraculous birth of Jesus. If we remember, it was John the Baptist's birth. He was born of an elderly couple, and he was chosen to prepare the way for Jesus by calling the Jews to repentance. So if you remember this, this is from Luke chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Here's a little uh, a taster of what John came to do. When the crowds came to John for baptism, he said, <laughs> this is John, you brood of snakes, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, we're safe. We're descendants of Abraham. That means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. So here Jesus is saying, um, hey, if you think that because you have a cultural connection as descendants of Abraham, that that's what the kingdom of God is about, and you're you're good. You don't really have to deal with your own sin because you've been given this gift, uh, this inheritance that you are born into a chosen nation. Uh, nope, that doesn't work because God can choose whoever he wants to choose. Chosen doesn't mean that you're entitled. And uh, it's an interesting critique even of those of us born in the United States with a, a common understanding in the church for the last at least 50 years or maybe 100 years has been that we're born into a, a chosen nation, Christian nation. We're chosen out of all of the nations of the world. And we don't, there's no biblical uh, basis for the idea that America is a chosen nation, but we've somehow co-opted some of the same um, fundamental default beliefs about our nationhood that the Jews had at the time. And here Jesus is saying, uh, here, uh, uh, I'm sorry, John the Baptist is saying, um, hey, that's going to do nothing for you. <laughs> that doesn't mean anything because you're under an expectation of repentance just like anyone else. So I want, what I want to point out here is that the on-ramp that John was preparing for the Messiah, for Jesus, the on-ramp he was trying to build was an on-ramp of repentance. That's why he comes off so in your face. He is trying to capture the attention of a people who've been lulled, lulled to sleep, thinking that their, somehow their cultural religious identity was enough for them. They had fallen asleep. They, they were not self-aware anymore, and they were not even aware that they were outside of relationship with God. What John is really pointing to here is, uh, is not that they were uh, embedded in a system of practice and belief that had religious undertones to it. No, what he was lamenting and then calling them toward was a relationship that over and above everything, God wanted a relationship with his people. And at the time that Jesus was born into the world, that had slowly been obliterated from everyday reality of people. And so here comes John saying, 
the only way to deal with, with the sleep you've fallen into is to wake up and turn around. You have essentially fallen asleep in a canoe that in a current of the river that is taking you over a waterfall soon. You have allowed the current to simply take you where it will take you. And I see where it's taking you. It's taking you to your own death, spiritual death in this place. But what would you do if you saw somebody floating asleep in a canoe headed toward a hundred foot waterfall? Wouldn't you scream and stamp your feet and jump up and down on the shore to try to get them to wake up? And then when you did, wouldn't you tell them to start paddling the opposite way? <laughs> wake up, paddle your canoe away because it's going to take you over the falls. That's essentially what John the Baptist is doing when he invites people to repent. He's targeting their complacency and their entitlement. He's challenging them to turn from following the way of the world and turn to the way of the kingdom of God, ultimately the way of the Messiah, the way of Jesus. So to repent means to turn your back on whatever it is that you have been following and turn your face toward the Jesus that you want to follow. The question is, who will be our king? Who will we turn our face toward? And in our culture, another way of saying this is, will we turn our face toward the, the cult culture of commingled religion and virtue that we live in now, where to be a good person is the highest uh, uh, quest of a parent for their kid? And uh, for families, uh, th this is the highest thing that we can attain is um, we want our kids to be good people and we want to be good people as well. And that's, that's as high as we look. But that's, that is not the gospel of Jesus to be a good person. In fact, the gospel of Jesus says it's impossible for you to be a good person apart from me. Every good thing you have, everything good thing you become is because of your attachment to me. So the, the way that you're trying to craft for yourself isn't, is, isn't possible for you to do apart from me. And unless you wake up and repent and start paddling your canoe uh, opposite from the current that you're in, there is a predictable way that this is going to end for you. So to repent means to turn your back on the current that, that we're floating on and turn our face toward the king and begin to paddle our boat towards him. So the first way of Jesus begins in the message of John the Baptist. Repentance. That is the first way of Jesus. Nothing that, that Jesus invites us into is possible until we repent. And repentance depends on some level of self-awareness because, again, in the kingdom of God, Jesus never forces anything. It's all invitational. So if he's going to invite us into a life of following him that is distinctly different than floating down the cultural current, the first step will be to be enough aware that there is something we need to repent from, that enough aware that we have floated in the current um, for a long time, so much so that we've been lulled into simply giving ourselves to it. So what is it that we need to repent from? If, if, and if we can't follow him and turn, until we turn to face him, then 
what we need to do is spend some silent, maybe solo time asking Jesus a simple question. Jesus, what does repentance mean for me? Jesus, what does repentance mean for me? This is what I'd like to encourage you to do, is to take some silent time, just five minutes, sometime in the, in the next week, where you're not, you know that you're not going to be interrupted, and you can slow down your thoughts long enough to ask this question, Jesus, what does repentance mean for me? And then wait in the silence. Um, this is a time not to feel afraid of, like he's going to drag out his laundry list that he's been so waiting to show you of all the terrible things that you need to repent of. I think you can look forward to this, this five minutes of quiet. I think you can look forward to his gentle hand on your back. Um, or maybe he'll be screaming and hollering from the shoreline and asking you to wake up and get your paddle out again. But in any case, uh, just remember the reason that he tells you whatever he does, whatever he will tell you is because he sees where your path is going and he so much longs for the kind of intimate relationship that he came to establish. He so much longs to have closeness with you. So whatever he shows to you will be the very thing that you can begin to um, use your agency toward, to, to point your face back toward intimacy with him. I would encourage you during this five minutes of silence, whenever you take it, to take something with you to write write it down. Not so that someone else can see what you've written, but it's important to get what's in the dark into the light. Writing is a way to bring confession to the surface. So in some traditions in the Catholic tradition or the liturgical tr uh, traditions, confession is, is uh, the, the underpinnings of it is actually quite healthy. It's, it's to get what's in the darkness out into the light to someone else. That's when it becomes real. That's when the light can begin to uh, bring redemptive power and healing to that thing. But if that's not part of your tradition, I encourage you to take something to write with. And as you sense Jesus prompting, surfacing something, what does repentance mean for me, Jesus? As you sense something surf coming to the surface, write it down. Um, then come back to it. Um, I did this practice not long ago, and I put that little piece of paper in my Bible so that whenever I open it up, there it is, and it's a way for me to go back to it and remember what Jesus said to me during this time, um, and it's quite encouraging when I do. It's, it's just remembering where he's calling me toward and what my change of path means for me, um, and it's a way of, of remembering what he told me as a lens in my everyday life. So I can breathe little quiet prayers throughout my, my, my everyday stuff that I'm doing that point me back to what he showed me. Um, again, every time I do this, I move the, the, the bow of my canoe a little bit more into the face of the current of my life. I, and I paddle a little bit more in the direction that he's, that he's calling to me. Um, th that's the purpose of spending this five minutes of quiet solo time. Again, what does repentance mean for me, 
Jesus and then write whatever comes to the surface. Then um, the, the addendum to that is, you know, what do I do now, Jesus? And let him, let him speak to you in this. It takes quiet. You're going to have to quiet not only your outer, your outer environment, but your inner environment enough to sense what he's saying to you. What do I do now then, Jesus? And don't worry. He'll prompt you. Um, you'll feel a nudge from his spirit about what to do, what baby step you can take. So again, there was a miraculous birth that preceded the miraculous birth of Jesus. And that miraculous birth um, in John the Baptist pointed our on-ramp back into uh, the kind of intimate relationship with, with Jesus that he's always longed for. And, and where John the Baptist is pointing, well, it's repentance. I thought I'd close off with a favorite song of mine. It's by Andrew Osenga. It's from maybe my all-time favorite uh, Christian album. It's called The Painted Desert. You probably never heard of it. You probably have never heard of Andrew Osenga, but I think he's one of the most powerful artists um, that I've ever heard. Um, I love his heart. I love how he translates what it means to live a life of passion for Jesus, but as a broken, messy person. Um, I love the honesty of his lyrics and the rawness of his music. So we're going to listen to a song off the, the, the painted desert called Give Up as our closing. So I encourage you, if you're not driving and you can stop for a bit and close your eyes and listen to this, just let the spirit of Jesus speak to you through uh, Andrew Osenga's own journey in this song, Give Up.
sing a song give up from the painted desert i'll put a link to that album on the soundcloud page for this episode so just to close off here um we live in a culture um where the messiah jesus is for most people akin to a bedtime story it's history or it's a fable or it's essentially immaterial to our everyday life. That is the culture that we live in. 
you can understand the heartbreak in the heart of God, who, whose great, greatest and deepest longing is for intimacy with us. You can understand the heartbreak over that. And what is our calling out of that? Well, it has to start with repentance, to turn, to allow the ache of what we long for deep inside, which is the same thing God longs for, to allow that ache to surface in us and help us to turn our face, turn our back on one thing and turn our face toward a new thing. If that's you, then I invite you to to, to um, dive into my little five-minute solo, quiet repentance experience with Jesus. Until we see each other or hear each other again on the next episode, we'll, uh, I, I hope good fruit comes from this, this one little thing to do that you can plan in your next week. We'll see you again in the next episode.